So I was talking to Pastor Allen, and he said, because I'm a college professor, I get an hour and 45 minutes tonight to deal with this very, very light and gentle, never ever confusing subject of heaven and hell. So everyone's good? There's like two people here are taking me way too seriously. Uh, I am fully convinced that some of you will not agree with everything that I teach on tonight. And I want, I want you to know this. That's okay. Okay? It's okay because in the book of Isaiah, it says that we should come and reason together. Amen? We're allowed to do that. We're allowed to have opinions. We're allowed to interpretively disagree with each other in the body of Christ and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. So all I ask is this, open up your heart as much as you open up your mind. And this is a perspective. And I put a lot of just deep thought into this and I'm gonna approach it in a very different non-traditional way. So I hope that this really has something for everyone here. So join me in prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, Lord God, in the matchless name of Messiah Jesus, we pray that you would help us to comprehend difficult subjects, Lord, that we should not be afraid of them, we shouldn't shy away from them, Father, but we should look for the biblical perspective in all of it because at the end of the day, Father God, we want to know what you think. We want to search the scriptures for all of our answers. So go before us now in the matchless name of Messiah Jesus. Amen. So is heaven our default destination or is it hell? You can think about that. Let it roll around in your minds and we'll eventually get to it. But you won't go far before you realize death in this world is kind of an ugly thing for a lot of people. These are a couple famous quotes from unbelievers on their deathbeds. Aristotle, the great Greek poet, said, death is a dreadful thing, for it is the end. And in his worldview, the grave was the end. Total finality, nothing beyond it. Voltaire, however, the most influential atheist of Europe in his time and in his day, cried out with his dying breath these disturbing words. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me but six more months of life. He said this to his attending physician. The nurse who was in that room as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ walked out of that room and said, I shall never again attend to an unbeliever as they pass into eternity. I imagine that this is the nicer things that were recorded and passed on that Voltaire said. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Holy Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. And so Dr. Lewis said, sure, it would be awfully nice to get rid of this controversial and upsetting doctrine, but I can't do it because it's been supported by Holy Scripture throughout the ages 
And more so than that, it was on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a shocking statistic that I know someone in here will later take me up on, and I hope you do. Who thinks Jesus spoke more about heaven than hell? Raise your hands. Who thinks Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven in the scriptures? And all the hands have it. Jesus spoke more words about hell than he spoke about heaven. That's important, all right? That's germane to a study of heaven and hell. Look at the gospel sources we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look at what Jesus did. He spent enough time talking about hell. Dr. Lewis is saying hell is a reality. It's not a nice one. It's not a nice place. It's not a nice concept. It's not a nice word picture. But there's no removing it. Scripture speaks of it often. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about it throughout his ministry. And it has the support of reason. But where do we get the baseline idea? And I would tell you that it comes from Genesis. Now, if you're going to get a book of the Bible wrong and you choose Genesis, I want you to know that much of Christian doctrine finds its formation in the first 10 chapters of Genesis. So listen well, Christian. If you mess up on Genesis, you are destined to mess up a lot of Holy Scripture. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I know a lot of people say, well, that's not what happened at all. Yes, it most certainly is what happened. In the day that they rebelled, their eyes were opened. They realized that they are naked. Isn't that funny? Who else in the garden was there to gawk at? Anybody? It's just one guy and one gal, and they've already been wed. And the first thing the first couple on the planet realizes is, what are you looking at? You see, with that bite of the fruit came the awakening. It's the knowledge of good and evil, meaning Adam and Eve were in a state of neutrality beforehand. They became confirmed in a fallen nature when they rebelled and disobeyed God. And you know what? The last time I checked, the current death rate is 100%. Everybody on this planet dies. I don't expect an amen. I don't expect a right on because we all know that it's the truth. But how disturbing are the statistics? Worldwide, three people die every second. 180 people pass into eternity every minute. 11,000 people die every hour. And 250,000 people pass every single day. And if you think these are inflated numbers, I don't use them in my preaching. These are the honest to God numbers. And someone will say, well, then how is the population staying current and rising? Because more than three people are born every second. And that's how the numbers stay in flux and they stay balanced. But we all die. We pass, we die. It's not a nice thought, 
It's unnatural. It's unnatural to say goodbye to people. But Christians throughout the eons have realized that hell is a reality. It's spoken of in the scriptures. Now, there are a couple mainline views of hell to run through quickly. Number one is simply what we will refer to as the traditional view. The traditional view of hell says hell exists and it will last for all eternity. Now, a lot of people don't like this, but I find that very few people push back on me when I say heaven will last for eternity. Well, I can tell you, I believe hell is just as eternal as heaven is. Number two is what's called universalism. The, the, use of, the universalism position is actually fairly new. It's not a very old position. It's much more in the realm of modernity. And the universalist says, there is no such thing as hell. And when Jesus went to the cross in AD 33, he redeemed all of mankind. Matter of fact, his redemption is so epic, it's so awesome, he'll just drag people kicking and screaming eventually into heaven. And I think that position is ridiculous, untenable, and cannot be proved by holy scripture. I, it can't, but I can tell you, it is a current mainline view. Our third position is called restorationism. Restorationism basically says hell is not eternal, but actually restores a sinner. Restorationism is part of Catholicism in the fact that that's what purgatory is for, allegedly. I'm sorry, I can't find it in the 66 authorized books of scripture. I looked really hard for all of my Catholic friends, but it turns out it's only in 2 Maccabees. Loosely. It says that you'll go to heaven to work off your sins, which for me as a theologian bothers me because I shouldn't have to work off any of my sins since the Lord Jesus Christ took all of my sin and shame on Calvary's mount. Amen? It's a weird position. But the worst position is the one that I think has more traction than any other position in modernity. And even in the Christian church, this position has become very popular. Annihilationism. Annihilationism is the newest view. Dr. John Stott, who I was who I very much admired and read a lot of his books. When his sister died, having not become a Christian, he actually switched his view and became a huge proponent of annihilationism. Uh, Dr. Clark Pinnock. Several theologians have taken this route. But I just ask, is annihilationism, is it biblical? And do people really understand what they're saying? It's the view that all those who reject Christ will not have to spend conscious eternity in hell, but rather after some suffering, they will be annihilated, quenched, put out. But does the Bible, but, but does the Bible teach that? What does the Bible teach on that? I can tell you that I think it's fairly impossible to extinguish a soul created in the image of Almighty God. God has created and crafted us for eternity. And for me, that means that the human spirit is now immortal. How can such a thing be quenched? I would say that a soul is an unquenchable fire. It can't be put out. But I know where people are at. And that's why I'm taking a very emotional look at hell. Because people have emotional problems with it. The questions concerning eternal torment raised by various opponents include, 
Is it eternal conscious torment needlessly cruel? And people ask that question. Isn't eternal conscious torment needlessly cruel? And I would say, that's a great question. And people will say, isn't punishment that lasts forever incompatible with God's love and mercy? And I also tell people, as I like to engage with them, yes, that is a great question. I pray you're putting your face in a Bible to find those answers and not putting them on some stupid website because you don't know who you're reading on the web. Anyone out there today with an IQ of over 80 can make their own website, okay? If I can edit WordPress sites, everyone in here can maintain a very successful website, all right? It's gotten very, very easy. So just watch where you're getting your sources from. But these questions made me think about two questions that almost no one ever asks, and don't get offended at either one of them. We need to remember these two things. It needs to remember that the Lord God defines and sets the standard for what is just and unjust, not people. And I know that that rubs the humanists the wrong way, and it probably rubs a lot of Christians the wrong way. But I hate to tell you, brothers and sisters, we are not the creator, we are the created, okay? The Lord defines and sets the standard for what is just and unjust. And a second question is a little more piercing. It could just be that a lifetime of sin against an eternally holy God is far more serious from his perspective than from the human point of view. Okay? It could just be that. We don't always think in in terms outside of ourselves. I have found that we are living in a world, for lack of a better term, people have become far too inwardly focused and not nearly enough outstretched. Christians don't like the doctrine of hell. Hey, I'm the one who has to teach on it. I don't like the doctrine of hell either, but I tell you this much. If you're a firm, solid believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, get out there and tell people of its reality. That's what the church needs to do. We need to stop making excuses and creating new winds of doctrine. And with a heart of love and concern, we need to tell people the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken our sin and shame. He stood in the gap for humanity. Jesus said clear as day, whosoever will may come. Right? Isn't that funny? We can get all wrapped up in our theological underwear and get in fights all day long. But the last time I, I read John 3.16, it still read the same. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I ask people all the time, are you a whosoever? I bet you could be. We all can be. So why does a correct view of hell matter so much? And I would tell you this much, and I say it out of a heart of love and concern, because eternity is an awfully long time to be wrong, okay? It's an awfully long time to be wrong. So I wanna take a couple minutes and look at six biblical reasons for hell's existence. And I really hope and pray that this will educate and equip and help some of you guys in your conversations with people. Number one, God's justice demands hell. Number one, 
God's justice demands hell. Genesis 18.25 reads, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now this is a particularly beautiful passage because this is Abraham pleading with God over not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he starts high. Lord, would you destroy the city for 50 righteous? What if 50 are righteous? What are there, Lord? No, I'd spare the city for 50 righteous. Oh, Lord, let, let me just, just, this dialogue's going on, God. What about 45? No, nope, spare it for 45. What about 40? Nope, not for 40. Then Abraham starts getting real bold. Like he went by fives, then he just starts, he starts going by tens. How about 30? No, I'd spare it for 30. What about 20? No, I, I wouldn't destroy the city for 20. Lord, what about 10? No, I'd spare it for 10. I think Abraham should have went one more time. Because maybe, maybe there were five. God is a merciful God. Now ready, now watch and follow me. This is a little theological and I don't want to go too hot and heavy and go flying over your heads. Look, all of God's attributes, the things which make God God are in perfect harmony and balance. Ergo, you don't want a God of mercy who is also a hypocrite and just lets sin slide. God's justice, all right, theodicy, the very fancy terminology, studying God's justice. You want a God who is just and merciful in equality, balanced, in harmony. You can't get God's attributes out of whack. He's in perfect harmony with himself because God, remember, God's not like us. We're a tiny little bit like him. He's not at all like us. Never flip it in your mind. Don't flip the script. We are not the creator. We are the created. So God is not like us. And we're a tiny bit like him. Thank God. The world would be a lot better. The world's a lot better off for that fact. And here it is. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes. God, who is the judge of all the earth, always does what is right. Always. He never falters. He doesn't make mistakes. He's always just in what he does. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is so just that he's likened to a rock. If you know anything about rocks, they're fairly solid. You can set your foundation on how just God is. He's perfect in all of his ways. He never makes a mistake, for he is always faithful. And last but certainly not least, Paul chimes in in Romans 10, 11 and says, for there is no partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't choose sides. God doesn't just let someone pass and then judge someone else. No, he's perfectly just in all he does. Ergo, God's justice demands hell. Point number two, God's love permits hell. And this is one that gets people and they don't think about it. And yet it does. The Bible asserts in 1 John 4, 16 that God is love. It's a very short, very powerful verse. Only three words in it. Even in the Greek, God is love. 
that does not translate unto what many people think it does. Oh, God is so loving. It's not what the verse says. God is love. And in his divinity, one of his amazing attributes of deity is that he is love. He is love. It's something he is. It's innate. It's intrinsic in his beinghood. God is love. But love cannot act coercively, only persuasively. Love never forces its way. It only draws and woos. And I would say a true God of love cannot force people to love him. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you right now, thus is true in all of life. You can't make anyone love you. All right, you can't. Love requires three aspects. A lover, a beloved, and the spirit of love flowing between the both of them. Love is a two-way streak. You can become a psychopathic stalker and chase someone and say things like, but I love you, I love you, Kelly, Kelly, I love you, I love you. And you would say, restraining order sounds like a great idea right about now. Okay? And you'd be right. Because I tell people, you can be obsessed. And that's lust, not love. Love is a give and take action. It is a two-way street. It is about reciprocal emotions. The give and the take, the back and the forth. Holy being given over to someone's good and that person to whom you are given over to is also equally given over to your goodness. Forced love is a term no one on earth is happy with. It is such a disgusting little four-letter word. I rarely use it, and I won't. No one wants someone forcing their love upon them. And I would say God, who has created us in his own image, respects humanity in an amazing way. And he does not force He beckons, he woos, he draws. In John 12, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And John said, Jesus spoke about the cross. How was Jesus lifted up? He was lifted up six feet in the air and nailed to a Roman cross of wood. The cross, the sacrificial death of Messiah Jesus has a drawing effect, but it is not a forcing upon Big difference. Find nuance, but it's a big, big difference. Number three, God's sovereignty warrants hell. God's sovereignty warrants hell. Unless there is a hell, there will be no final victory over evil. For what frustrates good is the presence of evil. And God is going to conquer all of evil. All of evil. So there must be an ultimate separation of evil from good or else good will not triumph over evil. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I can tell you this much. I think the absolute worst thing about hell is that just as heaven is a place of absolute renewal and fellowship, hell is a place, is a place of, of separation. Okay, it's a place of separation. And I'm going to be really honest with you, having studied the Bible for over 35 years, no, 
I do not believe that Satan and his minions are like the managers of hell, okay? Satan and his fallen angels are going to be in hell and be judged for eternity. It's not like they're running a hotel, all right? Now that's a bad view. A lot of people have it. It's like, you know, all right, your check-in is 11.15 and your checkout time is never, Danny. No, that's it's a ridiculous notion. It's so stupid, okay? <laughs> hey, I'll get a demon right over there. Your room's not hot enough. No, it's, it's, it's not gonna happen. That's a very bad concept of hell. It does not, ex that's not how it exists. I think more than anything else, the anguish of poor choices in life, especially the rejection of Jesus's free gift of salvation. I think that's the torment of hell. And torture, I would tell you this much, I haven't really found in many good English translations because the idea is more torment than torture. I don't think God takes pleasure in seeing people tortured for eternity. It's a place of torment, okay? It's torment. And if you can tell me what spirit fire is that doesn't consume, please, let's chat later. I'm very interested in your point of view. But I think a lot of the view of hell is very metaphorical when we look at the scriptures, and there's been a lot of misinterpretation throughout the years, decades and centuries. Yes, I still believe that it's an eternal place of separation. People separated from fellowship with God. Because I can tell you right now, God being omnipresent in his attributes, God's presence most certainly will be in hell. I know a lot of preachers throughout the years have said God's presence won't be there. I'd love to debate you theologically on that. That's incorrect. Fellowship with God will not be there. That doesn't mean his presence won't be there. And that is going to be a tormenting thing. People often say to me, you know, Pastor Jay, what do you think the worst thing about hell is? And I always have the same answer, and I will probably always have the same answer, unless the Lord God gives me a better one. Truth learned too late. That's the worst thing about hell. And that's why it's a place of anguish and torment. And don't think for a second that mental torment isn't every bit as bad as some forms of torture. There isn't a father in the room, and thank goodness there's some of us, there isn't a father in the room whose daughter is an hour past curfew and her phone is ringing right to voicemail and you can't find her on Life360, your little stalker tracker app so you can keep your tabs on your kids. There isn't a father on the planet, moms too, don't feel left out, who isn't in mental anguish in the car driving around like a psychopath at 105 miles an hour looking for their baby. And I know because I have a daughter who's 16. Torment, mental torment is a horrible, horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And I think hell is a place of regret. For most people there, it's gonna be a massive place of regret. For Satan and his fallen angels, it is a place of absolute judgment. In Matthew 25, 41, the Lord Jesus said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice that first and foremost, hell was prepared for the first original gangster, Satan, and the one third of the angelic host who he deceived 
and convinced to follow him in rebellion. That is what it was created for originally. Humanity got there. How? Hang on. Ask yourself a logical question. How did Satan and his minions end up there? It's rebellion to almighty God. How do you think people end up in hell? Rebellion to almighty God. It's the exact same. It, God is very, very fair because God doesn't show what? Big P word. Partiality. God doesn't show partiality. Hell is for rebels and is a place of regret. Number four, human depravity necessitates hell. Human depravity. You see, God is absolutely perfect. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. Now, a lot of Christians very badly mess that scripture up too and say, see, God can't look on sinners. He can't have fellowship with sinners. He couldn't even be in the same room. No, 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 no. It's not like God is Superman and sinners are kryptonite, okay? Because if that was true, there's no way the Lord Jesus Christ could have incarnated for some 30 years on planet Earth. Bad interpretation, usually from bad theology. What it basically says is that God is just. Habakkuk 1.13 is another theodicy. It's a justification for who God is. God is too just to just look at you and go, it's okay, I get it. I give you a pass. You, you got a pass. You, you're totally condemned because that would show partiality and God doesn't show partiality. He does not wink the eye. There has to be a payment. This is why Christ had to go to the cross. Had to. There had to be a just payment. God is absolutely perfect. He just can't give sinners a pass. And as such, he just cannot tolerate sin. His justice, the fact that he is a just and righteous God, he can't tolerate conscious rebellion. But human beings are utterly sinful. Paul knew this. Paul wrote in Romans 11, condensed verses 11 through 20 C, 23, there is no one righteous, not even one. I could stop there because that's depressing enough. But it's true. There is no one righteous, not even one. Paul's considering himself in there. Not even me, guys. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul said, in and of ourselves, this is a picture of the natural man or woman. This is it. This is how we are. So I love when people run around and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm going to, he I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm a good, pretty good person. I'll tell you this much. You know what breaks my heart and keeps me up at night? Hell will be filled with lots of good people who were sincere in what they believed and they were sincerely deceived. Plenty of good people. As the old axiom goes, the path to hell is paved with good intention. It's not about being good. It's about being perfect. I always ask people, you're good? How good are you like compared to, uh, I don't know, Mother Teresa? I mean, you know, if I was gonna let anyone watch my kids, it would probably be her. I mean, she was pretty hip. Well, I don't know if I'm as good as Mother Teresa. Oh, then you're beat because she's not even the standard of perfection. 
The standard of perfection is Christ. It's God. And when we put ourselves in that light, we find ourselves right where Paul is at. There is no one righteous, not even one. The standard of perfection is Christ. Thanks be to God, he went to the cross for us. Number five, human dignity requires hell. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus sitting on a mountain, overlooking the city, said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. As image bearers, God respects the free will choices of humans. Even horrible choices, like rejecting his amazing offer of salvation. Human dignity, human dignity is an amazing thing. And you know, a lot of people get really upset about it and they're like, well, it's not fair. Everyone should get to go to heaven. Really? What about people who've hated God their whole life? Hate him, shake their hand in rebellion, use his name as a byproduct, use his name blasphemously as a curse word. And then God drags those people to heaven where we who have loved God with all of our hearts are there praising and worshiping. That would be hell to you. You wouldn't like that if you've spent your life hating God. You would never want to be in a place where people love, adore, fall down on their faces and worship almighty God. You would hate that. It's dignity. It's dignity. Human dignity requires hell. Because I tell you this much. Our God if you've ever struggled with the concept, is radically pro-human, okay? If you hear nothing else in the rest of this talk, catch that and hide it in your hearts today. Our God is radically pro-human. How radically pro-human? Jesus Christ, who possesses eternal sonship, stepped out of heaven into the space-time continuum wed himself forever to humanity and then willingly was beaten and bruised, crushed and spat upon, drugged throughout the city of Jerusalem, put on display and nailed between two insurrectionists. He died a horrific and torturous death so that all who would believe might be saved. God is not just a lover of humanity. He's our creator, our sustainer. God is radically pro-human and we should be too. And last but certainly not least, point number six, the cross of Christ implies hell. The cross of the Lord Jesus implies hell. Only through the cross can we be delivered from our sins. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now, if there is no hell to shun, then the cross of Jesus was completely and absolutely in vain. I'll go further. Meaningless. 
I'll go a step further. A tragedy. If hell does not exist, then Christ died to save us from nothing. From nothing. But then why did Christ so willingly go to the cross? It says, despising the shame. Despising the shame. We don't think about it because I'm just going to be, I, I'll level with you because you're all adults here. The artists of modernity have so niceified it. Niceified, is that a real word? I'm not, I'm not sure. They've really cleaned things up. You've got Jesus crucified in this like long flowing nightgown slash loincloth. I'm not sure what that thing is, but I can tell you right now, as a student of history, it's inaccurate. Because you know how they crucified you in Rome 2,000 years ago? Naked to strip you of every last inch of human dignity. All right? Rome, some of the cruelest executioners out there. It, it wasn't bad enough to them that they had nailed you to die an excruciating two to three day death. Because guess what? That's how long it took the average person to die on a Roman cross. You usually did not asphyxiate unless you lost the will to live and just hung. Most people died on a cross very, very painfully through, through dehydration. You dehydrated three, four days and you were done. It was a horrible, it must have been horrible to watch a human body stretched out, gasping for air, just attempting to live another minute. Atrocious, horrific. And yet Isaiah saw it thousands of years out. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgression. And everything that gives us peace was laid upon him. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Why? Because Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ are one. And the Father is radically pro human. There was no other way. There was no other sacrifice that would appease Almighty God. Nothing less than the death of his only perfect son. The only perfect man who ever lived. C.S. Lewis said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without sign posts. Again, as I said, the path to hell is paved with good intention. Jesus in Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 said, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now again, I said heaven, heaven is a place about renewal. It's a place of peace and comfort. It's all things perfect. It's all things new. It's all things wonderful. It's all things 
eternal. And Jesus told us, look, the way that leads to destruction, the path to Hades, it's the easy one. It's the wide road. It's broadly traveled. Tons and tons and tons of people are on it. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way. And there are a few who find it, but oh, to the glory of God, to those who do. Brothers and sisters, I know it's been a very difficult 18 months for everyone. Things continue to be difficult. Things continue to look unsure, but I'll tell you this much. Let no one on this planet steal your peace in Christ Jesus. Let no enemy on this planet steal your heart. Because I can tell you this much, fear is the mind killer. When someone has stolen your mind through fear, they also have taken your heart. Don't let that happen. I know a lot of people are afraid of a lot of different things. And I can tell you in Christ Jesus, let none of us be afraid of any of those things. I'm not afraid of COVID. I'm not afraid of taking the vaccine. I'm, afraid of, I'm not afraid of not taking the vaccine. I'm not afraid of another lockdown. I'm not afraid of 20 more lockdowns because greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, rise up and be bold about who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't walk around fear-mongering. Don't walk around being led in fear and scared of every little thing. All right? There's nothing that can pluck us out of God's hand. There's nothing. And for those who love God, heaven is our retirement. And it's like nothing on this earth, quite literally. It's why we call it heaven. We are all awaiting, oh man, it's going to be so great, perfect bodies. And who would love a perfect body? All right, girls, that doesn't mean you can go buy a size one in heaven, okay? That's... You know, I got a size one reserved for me. That's not, it doesn't mean that. It means that these bodies, which are breaking down and getting old and funky, and some of us are older and funkier than others, uh, they're all like tents. Everyone ever go camping? You know, if you put a tent away wet, the next time you take it out to go camping, you'll be sorry. Because it'll be stanky and funky and oldy and moldy. And all of these tents that we have, these bodies right now, they're all doing that. You know, some of our tents are getting wider. Some of our tents are getting more holy as they grow more holy. But the truth of the matter is that which we are right now in a state of decay will be absolutely positively reversed because this, this decaying body is going to put on an immortal body. It'll be totally and absolutely unlike the old. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 43. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, the Old Testament promises that in heaven, death will be swallowed up forever in Isaiah 25, 8. Paul knew this. And so he continues in verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in 
victory. Heaven is a place of victory in Christ. Not just that, heaven is a place that we are going to physically inhabit. And a lot of people get this really confused. Heaven will be a perfect physical dwelling place, okay? A lot of people have really weird ideas about heaven, but I can say this much. It's not an ethereal twilight zone kind of dimension that we're going to float about on fluffy little clouds strumming harps. I don't know, maybe that's your heaven, but that's, I don't think it's the heaven of the Bible. We will be physically resurrected, physically. How was Jesus resurrected after three days in a sepulcher? Physically, bodily, visibly. He touched his disciples. They ate food together. Man, that is so good to know. Because I've got this sick fantasy and I already know it's sick, but I'm going to share it with you to show you how sick I am. I think one of the fruits of the tree of life is Twinkies. I can't eat them now because they spike my blood sugar and do bad things to me. But I'm pretty convinced that I can lay in heaven and eat Twinkies for a thousand years. Who knows? Are you a ho-ho person? Maybe it's different from you. I think heaven is an amazing, amazing place where we're even going to physically still be able to eat things. I can't wait about it. So awesome. But look, physically resurrected bodies require a physical place to dwell. We in our physically resurrected bodies will live on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe. John, Jesus in John 14, one through three affirmed, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am also you may be. This is awesome because there are words in here that give us some clues. Words like house, rooms, and a place suggest a physical place where the physically resurrected bodies of redeemed people will live forever. And I think sometimes we just don't go deep enough in our study of heaven to get there. You gotta realize there are three heavens mentioned in the Bible. And what we realize is, is that we need to keep in mind that words can have different meanings and be spelled exactly the same way. All kinds of words. We use them every day. We probably don't think about it, but the same word can have a multiplicity of different meanings. What do you think of when I say the word trunk? T-R-U-N-K. What do you think? What is it? Tree trunk. Back of your car, does it have a thing called the trunk? What's that big long thing that hangs off the front of an elephant's face? Oh. What if you use those old school words from the 80s, like when I was growing up? All right, we're going to go to the pool. Don't forget your trunks. What about that big old wooden thing that your grandma had all of her knit blankets in? What's it called again? It's called the trunk. All right, well, that's like five different meanings on one word spelled exactly the same because there's a semantic range of meanings. We have to understand that there are three heavens. There are three heavens. The first heaven is Earth's atmosphere. It is where the birds fly, where they dwell. Genesis 1.20, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 8.2. That is the first heaven. The second heaven is stellar, stellar heaven, where planets and stars dwell, the universe. Genesis 1, 14, 15, 17, and Genesis 15, 5. And then there is the third heaven, God's 
dwelling place. Psalm 14, 2. The throne room of Almighty God where John is translated. It is also where Paul went and he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember he says, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Ascended to, go find it in your Bibles. The third heaven. So there are three heavens. Earth's atmosphere, the second heaven is the universe, and the third heaven is God's throne room. But you got to realize, there's a lot of mourning on this planet, a lot of mourning for death. But we're not going to mourn. We're not going to mourn in heaven. There's no more mourning in that wonderful, redeemed place. And mourning in the biblical time was a big deal. There's loud weeping and wailing, ashes on your head, tearing your clothes in grief, walking around barefoot, shaving your beard off, hiring professional mourners. That's a big one. And then seven full days of just mourning, sitting shiva, just sitting around and weeping with your friends. We know that Job did this. His friends came and what do they do? They ripped their clothes, they threw ash on their head and they sat down and they were better counselors when they mourned with Job and said nothing. There's not going to be any mourning because we are going to have new heavens and a new earth. Now think about it. Only the first and second heaven will be made new. The physical universe is currently in a state of decay. Entropy laws, everything is winding down. It's not an endless supply of energy in our universe. And by definition, it's a closed loop. No new energy is being added. It's running out of gas. Secondly, our earth is cursed. And creation was subject to futility. But God's heaven is untouched by sin. The third heaven is absolutely perfect. So what needs redemption? Only the earth and only the universe. The first and second heaven. And once, this, once the first and second heaven are renewed, there will be a far broader meaning of the word heaven. Heaven itself, God's glorious throne room, will embrace the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and a sinless universe. Again, no more death and no more mourning. In Revelation 21, 4, we are told, he being Christ will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In the Greek, I have to tell you guys, it's not tears in a general kind of term, but every tear in the Greek singular, as if Almighty God will wipe away every tear from every single believer's eyes. And that's awesome. Loved ones not in heaven, I know some people are stressed out about that, but listen to Isaiah 65, 17, where God says, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Hell is a place of regret. Heaven is a place of renewal. There are no regrets in heaven. So what is our default setting? I would say due to the fall of humanity in the garden, hell is our default setting. See, I told you I'd eventually answer it. 
However, God was not surprised by any of this, nor did he fall off his throne when Adam and Eve sinned. Instead, he made provisions. Now, I quoted Matthew 25, 41. This is Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for yours since the creation of the what? World. A lot of theologians today say that the cross is divine cosmic child abuse. They say somehow it was a Hail Mary. No, it was plan A. Christ went to the cross. It was predestined for our salvation. It's God's plan A, not not B. Need proof of it? Isaiah 53, four through six says, surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or you can have Paul's condensed version in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, I said it before and it wasn't nice, but I'll say it again. I am convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt, hell will be filled with lots of good people. Lots of good people. Being a good person does not buy you a ticket to heaven. Sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than laying in a barn makes you a cow. Okay? I know there are plenty of people who come to church because they think they're punching their Jesus card. And I've got to tell you, I wouldn't be a very good pastor and it wouldn't be a very good message if I didn't close it out with this. Know this much, that if you believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead and you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. It's not about being a good person. The truth of the matter is there are no good people. We're all rotten. We're all garbage. The truth of the matter is God is so radically pro-human that he sent his only begotten son to the cross for us. It's called grace. The unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of almighty God. And if you don't know where your eternity lies, if you don't know where you're going when you die, then I would beg you now in the name of Jesus Christ, confess Christ as Lord and savior. It's not about being a good person. It's one of the oldest lies in the book. The second oldest lie in the book is you have time. And I tell people, that's not true. Tomorrow has been promised to no one in this room. You can walk outside and get struck by a bus. You can walk outside and get struck by lightning. No. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. When you hear the gospel, you need to embrace it. And you need to run with it. What I didn't tell you is the context of 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I'm closing out with this. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are now ambassadors for Christ. You want to know why Christians are good ambassadors for Christ? 
It's because the message of our king, the message of our Lord, the message of our ambassador is so sweet to humanity. And it's so simple. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Martin Luther called it the great switcheroo. Christ took all of our sin and shame and imputed to us forgiveness and righteousness. It's about grace. And it's about the fact that Jesus so willingly died for sinners. Let's pray.